Hurstwick Podcast, Episode 3. Welcome to the Hurstwick Podcast. My guests tonight are Barbara Wechter, who is a member of uh, Hurstwick, and one of the original members of Hurstwick, I think, or at least the current incarnation of Hurstwick. You've been with Hurstwick for how long, Barbara? Um, I think I started with Hurstwick in 2011. 2011, so wow. Um, So Barbara is, again, she's one of our instructors. She's one of our, again, one of our first instructors, as a matter of fact. In addition to that, Barbara's a blacksmith. She is an artist. She is a sculptor. She does all kinds of things. She's a total badass and also one of the nicest people you will ever meet. Thank you. Also tonight is uh, Dr. William Short, the uh, CEO and Grand Poobah of First Week. <laughs> he will be uh, helping us out tonight with our interview. We'll talk to Barbara about many things, including training, training weapons, training weapons that she makes, and we'll talk about that as we go forward. Bill, you want to take it away? I do. Barbara, I'm sure she will tell you more about it than I can possibly tell, uh, makes training weapons. Very unique design, selling them under the name of Wector Arms. And I hope, Barbara, you'll get far more into that later in the interview. But Barbara tries out her prototypes with us at Hurstwick. And over the years at Hurstwick, we used a lot of different kinds of training weapons, you know, many different approaches to it. And recently, Barbara brought in the latest generation of her one-handed axes. We use many different kinds of tools in our training. You know, steel, uh, hard nylon, leather, wood, all kinds of different kinds of of training weapons. Barbara brought in this training axe, a one-handed axe, that really opened some doors to us. Uh, You know, we thought we understood one-handed axes based on our work with these previous training weapons. But what Barbara brought in really opened new possibilities for us to get closer to what I guess I would call real combat, to get us closer into the scene of what Viking combat might have been like, the kind of intensity and the kinds of targets and so on. And so this new training weapon made me realize, you know, Barbara's got a lot of insights that I don't think too many other people have insights from making the weapons, from being a blacksmith, and also as a part of Hurstwick, we look at historical weapons on a regular basis, and Barbara has that experience as well. So I'd really hope that Barbara could talk to us about her approach to making training weapons and, uh, you know, how all these come together to create the kind of training weapons that you've created. Well, it's kind of evolved um, over the years since when we first started. Not long after I uh, started working uh, with Herswick back at the Higgins, um, we had a couple of different kind of training weapons. We had uh, the wooden wasters. Um, we had wooden sticks wrapped in foam that we were using for sparring and those kind of contact things. And that was kind of it. I think we were maybe using spears. We had ones that just had like rubber tips on them for that we kind of used for throwing, but we hadn't really used those in combat at all. And there were these axes that I think the Higgins had made, they seemed not all too good to actually practice with. And I figured that I went to art school and I made in sculpture and I had all these different experiences, all these materials that 
I could go ahead and uh, give a shot at coming up with something on my own. And this kind of goes back with the different things that I was doing at this time. Um, I had just started working with a bladesmith in Connecticut. Part of bladesmithing training uh, was learning how to make uh, sheaths for the knives that we were making. Uh, so I just got all this looking with leather. And oh, and I think at the Armory Museum, I don't even know what they were called, um, but they had these leather practice weapons that kind of yes. were these. Yes, they were called dusacks. Yeah, so I kind of saw those leather training weapons and thought that maybe I could do the same thing um, with leather and make an axe out of it. So the very first generation, which is still hanging around uh, somewhere, was uh, just three layers of leather uh, wrapped around a dowel and sewn and glued together around the edges. And that first generation uh, was great to start out with, but quickly the leather broke in and they got really floppy and uh, the axe kind of looked like a domesticated orca. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so from there, I figured we needed something else inside there to make it a little bit stiffer and help uh, maintain its shape. And then I started adding a layer of plastic on the inside. Mm -hmm. Now, I have uh, I have one of those. I guess we call that the Mark II axe. And I think that's only the second generation. And I, mine is still pristine, and I use it all the time. Mm -hmm. And I've yanked people across the room with that axe, and it's still holding up. So... Even at Mark II. Well, I didn't, now I can't wait to hear about these new ones yep. when we get going on those. So those held up uh, pretty well to begin with. But eventually, with a lot of use, um, they would snap down mm -hmm. the base where the axe met the axe had met the handle, the haft. And mm -hmm. then they would get floppy again. And then we were back to uh, ground zero with mm -hmm. the floppy axes. So the most recent iteration had a cast rubber inside so that gives it way more uh, durability there there's no chance that that's going to break the handed axes that we've been working with recently i sculpted out of clay first and i looked at there's a bunch of examples of all of these different um axe styles that have been found and recovered and i think they're called like the peterson axe uh, typography or something like that yes found one that had um, a nice bearded shape because we like we've been using the the bearded shape in our training and we like it for hooking it turns out to be really uh versatile and yes. we can do some really good things with it so i found a nice looking uh bearded axe from that diagram of axe heads and that's what i use to design the uh the rubber core okay that's amazing barbara because i didn't realize that that you actually went to peterson's early 20th century description of Viking Age axes and picked a historical example to base yours on. Yes, I did. So I, and I tried to get the measurements close. Things always change a little bit through the, the different processes that, that as the base there. And I made a rubber mold and now I'm able to cast these axes. So I think the new one's even more consistent than the older ones because um, I had a template that I would draw everything out on, but it it always would change a little bit throughout the crafting process because I'm using all these different materials and stacking them up and reshaping them together. They would all change a little bit um, throughout the process. So I think the new ones are even a little bit more consistent too. Mm -hmm. The other big change with the most recent generation is the handle shape. Yes. Originally, I was just using dowels because it was really easy. You could just get them and I could just wrap the leather straight around the dowel and build the axe out that way. But they weren't indexing good in the hand. Um, in sparring, they would kind of flip 
ground and it was hard to keep it straight. So the new ones have a rectangular shape that works a lot better and holds a lot better in the hand, but it also takes a lot more uh, work shaping to get them to feel good. So that's the kind of the takeaway with that. So I've had to put a little bit more uh, labor into them, but I felt like it's really paid off. Yeah, we are all very, very happy with how they feel and what they allow us to do in, in sparring. So it's a big, big breakthrough. And what I think is very cool about it is how you took various elements, your skill as a leathersmith, as uh, an artist, and your hands-on experience with the historical weapons and going back to Peterson to get the shape right, all of that. The, 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 the benefits of that really show through once we started using these weapons. The other thing that's very cool about the new design is they allow some of the moves uh, that are described in the sagas for these axes that were hard to make with the other axes because they simply failed. The hooking yeah. maneuver, for instance. Well, that's why I, one of the things I'm really fascinated about uh, trying uh, this new one um, and I've seen pictures of it and I can see where the, the Peterson outline in there and trying it in sparring. Cause I think that, um, you know, the more ac more historically accurate presentation, um, it's going to give us a much better uh, sense of how these things really work and how they really f fight. Cause it, just looking at it, I can tell that it's going to change a few things that I often assume about how they use these axes. So it's very, very cool. It is very cool. The other thing that we did recently that I'd like to share with our audience is you know, we took one of these training, new training axes and a steel axe, one in each hand, and started swinging them. And they were more alike than they were different. And that that's really exciting. We've never really had a training axe like that. Yeah, but I think that's uh, the important thing that's kind of lost in a lot of training weapons. Yes. Is the balance and how they actually feel. And that's something that I find really important when I'm trying to design and make weapons is I want them to actually feel and work the way the real ones would. We were using these uh, plastic ones that were just kind of all, or nylon, all cut out in one piece. So the weight was pretty much even all the way through. And when we hold real steel axes, it's just not what it feels like at all. And yeah. I also thought the... Um, the hooks on those beards were a little too small. It was hard to actually get and hook things that, the way that these ones do. Yes. Um, I've, you know, played with some different types of practice weapons and different things, and they all kind of have like a, a purpose. Mm -hmm. And in Hurstwick, our purpose is to try to get things as close to how we think they actually thought as possible. And with a lot of these other training tools, that's not necessarily the end goal it's to have a a safe and fun game that kind of looks like european martial arts so you'll get these lot these big foam sticks or these <laughs> yeah. giant foam axes and these things that are great to go run around and bonk your friends with but the more that we use them don't really act or feel like the actual uh weapons should you mentioned that the feel in the hand or the balance is an important aspect as you develop these practice weapons. Are there other aspects that are important to you? I mean, what are you looking for in a training weapon? So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep that, that balance and feel, but I also don't want it to hurt you too much because you could just train with steel, and that's what we do sometimes. But sometimes you want to work on power and seeing how hard you can hit and trying to full at that uh, spar at that full power that you can't with steel weapons uh, so these weapons are they're 
they're pretty firm, but they have, do have a little bit of flex that the, that the the new rubber has given them. So you can hit really hard. You'll still you can still bruise, but it won't break any bones. Hurt you seriously in those other ways for the kinds of things that we like to try and do. Yes. And also being practical, we were talking about the hooking. Like I want them to actually work that way, because once you have something that does work that way, you can. There's a full range of different possibilities. Yes. So it's balancing safety and function there and trying to get it to act like a real weapon. Now, we've been talking so far here tonight about your one-handed axes, which were revelatory, I would say. They really did open up doors that had been closed to us in the past. I'm curious about other weapons, training weapons, that you are either making or thinking about making or have made for other people. Um, right now, I've been uh, I've been working on some spearheads. I keep on tweaking those a little bit. I just cast a new one um, on Monday that looks really promising. The first ones were a little bit too um, thin, and they would bend too much when we were using them in sparring. So now I've made a plastic insert that goes inside of the rubber, so now I'm kind of going all the way back. But it's made in, a, in such a way that the, the rubber can still flex a little bit at the base, mm-hmm. but it's keeping the, the spearhead more firm so i've been working on the spearhead for a long time because we have um, some spears that work pretty well but they still are a little bit different than real spearheads so that's the the big one that i'm working on but in the past i've made all sorts of different weapons for, i've made a lot of pole arms i've made an english bill and i've made a couple of other different pole arm shapes that um, people have contacted me and requested for so i'm open to trying out anything i can and uh Willing to branch out into whatever kind of weapons that people need. Okay. Have you had a chance to try this uh, new technique on a on a two-handed axe? Yes. Um. So I just. Oh, you have. I think maybe two weeks ago, I finally uh, made the cast of the two-handed axe. Wow. And I just got that into the training room. We've been. I just used it on Tuesday in our, our in our class session. We're working on um, getting used to the balance of that axe. Um, and it's been working. I think it's really, really good. I'm really excited about this one. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. And I think that one is based off of the uh, Peterson Type M uh, Dane okay. Axe. Okay. So I'm still trying to go back to those uh, historical sources when when designing the axe heads. And the, the Peterson is, oh, God, I'm trying to remember now. Um, the Peterson is more uh, kind of long and narrow as opposed to the wider blades that we that we're used to, or is that not right? Uh, so that, when I'm talking about Peterson, like there are these charts of all these measurements of different mm-hmm. shapes of different mm-hmm. heads that they've found in different places and in different time periods. So that itself is just a chart of all different shapes and sizes oh, okay. and stuff. So okay. you can go see there and kind of get like a historical survey on how axe heads were shaped differently in different times in different places. Because those designs have kind of morphed the way that um, the Viking sword is different from the like a two-handed long sword from later periods so when we say peterson we're not talking about uh, a particular archaeological find or typical style we're talking about uh, a common reference for various um styles and maybe i could jump in here for a minute peterson was a norwegian academic and researcher and i believe his book came out in 1911 which was a typology and a survey of a number of different Viking weapons, including swords and spears and axes. And he identified them by uh, a a letter, their typology by a letter, 
you know, many of them have, that have been found have a similar size, shape, and so on. And so he tried to categorize them, and his categorization is still probably the most widely used. So I, in the future, I would like to uh, make more, try out some of these other axe head styles that, I, that we haven't necessarily used before. And yes. the more uh, different types and styles of heads, I think the more we can learn about the axe itself. Well, it'd be really interesting to see, um, as, as, as we, if we, for example, work through the evolution of different styles of axe heads, how it affects the evolution of maybe combat using those axes. Um, does it change the way you use, uh, would have to change the way you use them, but how does it change the way you fight with them and things yeah. like that? It yeah. would be fascinating. Yep. Yeah. And uh, that, that was what was so uh, wonderful and sort of eye-opening about Barbara's latest one-handed axe is, you know, we have become used to using our training axes in a particular way, and that's because these training axes are woefully inadequate. They don't match up with uh, steel weapons, and so Barber's new weapon does match up with steel weapons, and so it needs to be used in a different way. So it is much closer to uh, a real weapon than what we've used in the past, and it means we need to change how we use it. It's really opened a door. What these weapons allow us to do is hit with some significant power. So we've been talking about uh, training weapons, but um, Barbara, you also work as a blacksmith. Is that correct? Did I have that right? Uh, yes. Um, you can get a little, There's could be some uh, arguments with purists and stuff out there. So my primary training is, a, is in bladesmithing, but I'm at the camp that, Blacksmithing and bladesmithing are closer than they are separate, but you have some, there's some people who would think that blacksmithing is a distinct thing and bladesmithing is a different thing. But that's a whole nother uh, can of worms out there. But I was brought up with the base of you learn the, the basic blacksmithing skills and then you can use that in uh, bladesmithing. But I, um, I apprenticed with a, uh, a bladesmith in particular for a couple years in Connecticut. So I, uh, I went to the Maryland Institute uh, College of Art for my undergraduate degree, and I majored in interdisciplinary sculpture while I was there. And once I graduated, I was trying to figure out what to do. And I had already, always been interested in blades and weapons and things like that. So I thought that was the perfect opportunity to go try and figure out how to actually do that. Um, so I found an organization called the American Bladesmith Society and found a big list of all of the um, the tested smiths that they have throughout the country and found a journeyman smith in Connecticut named uh, Mace Vitali, who was very kind to decide to take me on as an apprentice and uh, teach me for a couple of years there. That's fantastic. Yes. Yeah, I just want to jump back to your, your college career a little bit because there was a project that you did in school. And I, I'm not sure if this was uh, is it part of your undergraduate or later work, but we have this piece at the Hurstwick training room in Millbury, Massachusetts. And this thing is amazing. And Barbara, I want you to describe for the audience what this thing is. And okay. So I started getting interested in Vikings and uh, Norse mythology while I was in um, college. And so by senior year, all of my work revolved around uh, Norse mythology. And I figured that I had access to this beautiful metal shop and all of these materials 
And this would probably be my last opportunity for a long time to make something big. Um, so yeah. I <laughs> decided that I wanted to make a giant Thor's hammer um, as part of my senior thesis project. So this thing's probably five feet tall, uh, maybe four feet wide. I think I finally got it on a scale one time, and it's around 300 pounds. Um, but it has these. Uh, <laughs> I've, has I've these, helped move it. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it has these, uh, two faces on either side um, that are cast aluminum, but they have the depiction of Thor fighting the Midgard serpent at mm-hmm. the end of the world. And I uh, made that out of a giant wax carving and made these big sand molds and uh, did this nice big aluminum pour um, for those. And then the steel, the sides are uh, steel that's been welded together and screwed onto the aluminum. And then there is a giant cedar tree trunk um, mm-hmm. that uh, is, the, <laughs> is used as the handle of the, the hammer that I actually found behind the sculpture building. And I don't know uh, <laughs> who they actually belong to, but they've been sitting there for a really long time. So I decided to adopt one of them. <laughs> and luckily the shop had this giant hoist that I could use to hoist it up and slowly lower it into the hammer opening so I could yes. fit it. And and folks, if you go to herstwick.com um, and search around, you will find pictures of this of this thing. It is really quite astonishing. It is the centerpiece of the training room. It is. And I've I've had the pleasure of helping move it from one place to another. And it's uh it's no joke. <laughs> and as i tell all of our visitors to the training room it is smaller than life size <laughs> i don't think chris hemsworth could lift it nope. I, I really don't think he could i did make them um, some smaller uh, smaller hand so you could actually hold in your hand while i was there too <laughs> well we went and did um, an iron pour at the university of maryland and i Use the opportunity to cast some iron uh, Thor's hammers too. Mm. Some small nice. <laughs> now, as you told us that story, you said that you somehow got interested in the Norse mythology and in Vikings. Can you tell us more about how you got into this field, into this interest? Uh, sure. Um, I first got interested in mythology in high school. It was originally Celtic and Native Irish uh, mythology. My senior year of high school, I did an independent project where I illustrated part of the Cuculain myth um, because I originally wanted to go to school for illustration. Um, But once I got to school, I saw the metal shop and decided it was so much cooler. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there was a group there that formed up my sophomore year maybe even they started my freshman year I'm not sure but I started getting really involved um, my sophomore year called the Micah Viking clan um, (laughs) which um, was mostly an excuse to get together and uh, watch movies and have meat feasts and sometimes do some Viking related activities Um, but that got me really interested in the Viking mythology um, from there and I kind of took off with that and went crazy. By the end, I was probably the one in the group who had the most actual interest in Vikings. I made up this fun game that we played one night called Baldur and Hoder. It was kind of like tag where one person was blindfolded 
and everyone else was Balder, and they had a Loki who was trying to tell them where to go and how to like tag people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to make up fun things that actually was uh, related to Norse mythology. Well, the rest of the activities were were less uh, Norse actual themes. So that's kind of where my interest with Vikings started. And I have always been interested in martial arts. I uh, did Taekwondo from fifth grade all the way up through uh, senior year of high school. So I did about seven years of Taekwondo growing up and I got to my uh, second degree black belt there. And I dabbled in a little bit of Aikido. We had an Aikido club in college. And while I was there, I watched this documentary called um, uh, Reclaiming the Blade um, that I think started off talking about um, the weapons used in the Lord of the Rings movie and kind of went off on how they did the combat training. But through that, I learned about this thing called historical European martial arts, which seemed awesome. I didn't even realize that that was a thing um, before that movie. So I immediately went and started searching and trying to figure out where I could go practice historical European martial arts. And I found the Higgins Armory Museum was one of those places. This was while I was still in college and it wasn't too far away from my home in Connecticut. So I thought it was within reasonable reach. So I kept on keep my eye out for when I graduated and I went back home. And then not long after graduated, I, graduating, I ended up moving to Massachusetts. So I think the first thing I did um, was go to the Higgins I saw not only did they have historical European martial arts, but they had a special Viking program, which was even more exciting because that's what I was really interested in. So I think within the first, I think I moved in January and there was a workshop starting in January. So I think within a week or two of me moving up here, I was involved with Herswick at uh, the Higgins and I took this four week introductory course where we met on the weekends and practiced for a couple hours. And I was hooked from there on. You know, it's really funny because I watched that same documentary (laughs) shortly before I was like, man, I would really like the, that's funny. (laughs) I wonder how many other people uh, found it. Yeah, I should ask around. Well, it had Viggo Mortensen in it, so (laughs) what's not to like? One thing I wanted to ask about, if that's all right, Barbara, you know, what's the future evolution? Where do you think these will go? I guess the reason I'm asking this is these training weapons allow us to train and also a little bit to play and try things in a safe way uh, while getting us closer and closer to the kinds of intensities that Viking Age people fought with. So I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about what the future evolution of these things might be. I think that's something that we'll find out the more we use them. I mean, that's kind of the way it's gone along the whole time is I make a model, we work with it for a while, we see where it works and where it doesn't, and then we improve on the next one. So it's hard to say where we're going. Mm-hmm. And then I think only through use and practice will we mm-hmm. figure out what we need to change and what the next uh, generation and models need to be. Sorry if that's an un- unsatisfying no. answer. It's a pragmatic approach. I mean, there's a lot of reality to that. We don't know where, what its shortcomings are until we actually put it to the test and start sparring with it. Sure, and it, it's been, well, how long? Well, four or five years of evolution so far. So, um, but every every time, every go around has been a, 
was significantly improved. Um, yes, improved item. So, I think probably the biggest place for improvement right now with the current ones is I'm I'm happier with the handle design, but I still feel like that could probably use a little bit more tweaking. So, getting it to feel right in the grip, I think will get better as we go along, and we and I make more of them and and modify that as we go along. Mm-hmm. Kind of a balance between um, getting it close to reality and right versus ease of acquiring materials and the cost of acquiring materials at this point. Just one other question that I had that's really not related to anything we've talked about, and that is how do you do these weapons testing? Once you have some ideas for a design and you've built up a prototype, do you have some sort of testing system? Um, really the testing system has been to bring it into the training room and just put it through all the paces. Um, we'll do a bunch of, uh, striking on the heavy bag and see how it holds up there. We'll try it with pad work. Uh, we'll try it in sparring situations and I'll really try to put it through its paces and see if I can get it to fail. And sometimes it happens right away and, uh, sometimes it takes a little while and sometimes they hold up. I've been going through a lot of this trial and error practice um, with the spearheads right now. Can ask Bill. I brought in uh, several different models, each a little bit different, <laughs> over the last couple months. Okay. And I'm excited to try to do them all. You always have very willing beta testers, so it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I will say that uh, it's it's always a pleasure to test these new things in the training room. And then my other question to you, Barbara, is who you think ought to be using these weapons. These training weapons are really ready for people who are ready to move on to the next uh, step in their training. If they've been using, you know, the lighter weight things, if they've been using primarily foam weapons or facsimiles, but aren't quite re- right there, um, I kind of challenge you to take a risk and uh, try this because they really they feel so different than all of the other training weapons use, we've used before. And if you are curious to how Viking Age people actually fought and used their weapons, then I think these are definitely the direction to go with. It's taking it from the next level of that kind of just recreational play to let's take this a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the kind of difference between these and a lot of the other uh, stuff that's out there. And, you know, maybe I'll add something. Maybe it's appropriate. Maybe it's not. You know, there are groups out there who train pretty much entirely with steel. These have a huge advantage over uh, an ordinary steel weapon in that you can hit with real power, you know, with real intent and have a a pretty low uh, risk of any serious injuries, even though you're not wearing a lot of armor. Um, So it's a very different experience even than steel training because it allows you to do things that you couldn't easily do with steel. You know, this full power hit to pretty much any target on the body. And so even for folks who are used to using steel in their training, they might find, in my opinion, they might find these weapons useful. Yep, I agree. There's a there's always a tool for the particular goal that you have in mind. And it's important to use steel and see how that feels, but you can't get the the idea of that full strike and that full intensity using steel, unless you are willing to actually seriously hurt somebody. And unfortunately, in a, or fortunately in this day and age, um, that's not something many of us are willing to do. 
So I think it's important to get that kind of uh, full contact, full power experience. Rainier had the question about comparing the training axes to kind of the the paintball weapons mm-hmm. and the evolution. Maybe started as a way to train for a gunfight, but they've turned into this whole sport. And now the design of paintballs are geared toward this fun activity. And I feel like my weapons are trying to stay truer to the original intentions than a lot of the other training styles out there, which become very sport-like and stylized, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a bit, it's a different thing. And mm. if you're doing a point sparring game, you're going to use different weapons and you're going to use them at different ranges. And these weapons are used differently because we're trying not to, to turn it into a game in that yes. way. We're trying to keep it a little bit more true to the original idea. Now, I, sh- I should mention that Barbara, you don't just make these axes strictly for Hurstwick. You do have an operation called Wector Arms. And can you tell us a bit about that? I started uh, Wector Arms to try to share these axes with the rest of the people out there because they've been so useful in our practices um, with Hurstwick. I think a lot of other people who are interested in uh, Viking style martial arts or even anything else because I have branched out and made other type of weapons um, I want these to be available for other people, too, because I think having the right kind of training weapon really makes a difference. Um, and I have uh, sold a couple to a bunch of places around the country and even internationally. I think I sent some axe heads to Finland before. Um, so I'm willing to help out and work with anybody who is interested in uh, fighting with uh, axes or other uh, <laughs> pole-type weapons. They're all handmade, and there's a lot of time and care that goes into each one of these. Um, I can cast the rubber axe heads, but the rest of it, I have to fit the leather by hand. I have to drill the holes, and I spend a lot of time sitting there sewing. So these are, they're really a labor of love. And I know that they have a little bit of higher price tag out there than some of the other ones, but it's because I put a lot of time and, and work into these. And I think that they're they're worth that extra labor than your... Uh, saw cut nylon waster i think they have a, a lot of good features i think they're worth their, the care that gets put into them I, I would agree and i i again i have a an older model but one of the things i really like about that weapon is it's it's unique it's there's nobody else's is like quite like mine because they're all a little bit tiny bit different and it, they're beautiful i mean they're in addition to uh, being very useful training weapons they're also they're very beautiful so um they're they're a nice thing to own and where can people find you? I have a new website that just uh, launched a week or two ago, wectorarms.com, that even has a store this time. So you can go ahead and buy one straight from the website instead of having to email me individually to place your order. And I'm also on Facebook, so you can go and check out and see all the activity that I post on there. Excellent. And we'll also have links to uh, Barbara's uh, Facebook and her Wector Arms site on the herstwick.com site. All right. Thank you very much. We have been chatting today with Barbara Wechter of Brick Wechter Arms, also an instructor with Hurstwick, and Dr. William Short, the uh, uh, CEO, Grand Poobah, and overall <laughs> leader of Hurstwick. Really appreciate the two of you taking the time today. The uh, Again, the, the Wechter Arms axes are beautiful. Can't wait to get my hands on one of the newer ones. Getting a chance to really dig into uh, how they're made and, and how they're used. Bill, uh, Barbara, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. And I wanted to thank Barbara for spending the time sharing with us her work and the background to her work 
and her insights on how these weapons should be made. As I said earlier in this uh, in this interview, the, her latest generation of weapons have really opened new doors for us that were closed before. And so we're, we're grateful to have them. And we're grateful for Barbara to be here with us. Thanks. Uh, thank you guys. It's been a lot of fun uh, hanging out and talking about all this tonight. So I'm very uh, grateful for being invited as a special guest. And that's our show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Head on over to Stitcher, head over to iTunes, wherever it is you get your podcasts, and subscribe. And you can really help us out if you give us a rating, preferably a good one, uh, or leave a review. That helps us bubble up to the top of people's podcast searches. You can find us on the web at hurstwick.com. That's H-U-R-S-T-W-I-C.com. We're also on Facebook. Look for Hurstwick on Facebook, and you'll find us there. We are everywhere. And all this talk of weapons reminds me. From his weapons on the open road, no man should step one pace away. You don't know for certain when you're out on the road when you might have need of your spear. Or axe, in the case of uh, arms. In any case... Hurstwick Podcast is a production of Hurstwick LLC. Our executive producers are Dr. William Short and Rainier A. I am your host, John Davis. Until next time, farewell. I keep looking down here. What I'm doing is I'm marking down when people say certain things because then I can find them again later. It's just like, ah, I'm not really listening to you. No.